0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on air, an Upstate psychiatrist will talk us through how to develop a healthier electronic relationship.
1: You really want to look at the motivation for change. What is it that is wrong in their current life that they feel that reducing their cell phone usage would help address?
0: A pediatrician explains how living conditions and history both influence the health of Native American children
2: living on reservations. Lack of running water. Lack of electricity and a higher rate of household crowding puts children at greater risk of many infectious diseases. A feeling of fullness in the ear, progressive hearing loss, are symptoms of
3: Meniere's disease. Vertigo is is oftentimes the most debilitating symptoms. If we can at least alleviate that symptom, the disordered ear is much more bearable.
0: We'll learn about all of that and a visit from our healing muse, but first, the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll hear how living conditions and history impact the health of Native American children growing up on reservation lands. Then we'll learn about diagnosis and the range of treatment options for Meniere's disease. But first, How healthy is your relationship with your smartphone? Three-quarters of Americans have smartphones, and half of children grow up in households with three or more smartphones. That's according to surveys conducted in 2017 by the Pew Research Center, which also found 46% of smartphone users said they could not live without their smartphones. Here to talk about the relationship we have with our phones is upstate psychiatrist Christopher Lucas. Welcome, Dr. Lucas. Hi. Thanks for being here. Now, some people would say that those 46% who feel they can't live without their phones are addicted. Is that the case?
1: You know, I don't think it meets the sort of full criteria for an addiction as you might with drugs or alcohol. Um, it's it's very similar to a behavioral addiction, something like compulsive shopping or compulsive gambling. Um, in many ways, rather than addiction, sometimes people think of it as a love affair, that they're actually so attached to their phone that they, they miss the phone when they're not there.
0: Is it it an unhealthy relationship or attachment? It can
1: be. You know, like like any relationship, it can go beyond the point when it's beneficial. Um, So if it starts to interfere with functioning in some way, so does it get in the way of regular social interactions? Does it make uh, people less able to solve problems? Does it impact their sleep? You know, those are all signs that it's gone beyond being a help to being somewhat of a hindrance.
0: Okay, and we all see people... Staring down at a phone screen, on the streets, in classrooms, sure. everywhere. So,
1: you know, I've seen people walk into traffic signs because they're too busy <laughs> looking at their phone. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, you see family meals where nobody's looking at each other or talking to each other. They're all got on the phone at the same time.
0: So maybe that's
1: a little over usage. I think so. You know, I think we can't imagine a world without them now. So it's really a matter of trying to have to use them responsibly and to be aware of when they are actually getting in the way of things.
0: Um, The Sunday Times newspaper recently wrote about an experiment to separate young people from their smartphones um, and the findings that this younger generation, these people in their 20s, suffer from anxiety, unhealthy eating, and loneliness if they're not online. So that kind of
1: bolsters your description of... Um, In the UK, they've actually had a term called nomophobia, which is no mobile phone fear. So um, it's sort of interesting that uh, it's very scary to consider not having the phone. Um, but the actual practice, um, when you actually remove somebody from their phone for a while, after initial distress and thought that they'll never be able to cope, they actually then start to rediscover the things that they did. that may, The phone Before. may have been getting in the way. Yeah.
0: Okay. There's another study I came across from De- Deloitte that showed that people check their phones an average of 47 times per day, with the 18 to 24-year-old group checking 86 times per day. This same study showed 89% of smartphone owners check their phones within an hour of waking up, and then 81% check their phones before
1: going to sleep. That's probably an underestimate. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think it's in the hundreds of times a day that people are checking. Um that many people don't want to even turn their phone off when they go to sleep. Um, you know, most recommendations is that you turn it to do not disturb mode, so that because um, the phone has a major impact on people's sleep. One of the most rec- replicable scientific findings about excessive cell phone use is impaired sleep. Um, so it's either due to the light from the screen, um, or the direct interaction, or the the lack of being able to. Be not worried that the phone's going to go off, that there's they're going to be a message and they're going to miss it. Um, so there can be great anxiety about has how am I going to get a message? Am I going to respond to it quickly enough? These are not things that are conducive to good sleep.
0: Well, some people use uh, their phones not just for the messaging and talking on the phone, but um, for playing music, mm-hmm. reading, um, streaming, movies, sure. all this, all these other things are those as unhealthy?
1: You know, there's a bit of a gender difference. um, So that males tend to use smartphones more for games and for uh, consuming content, uh, whereas females far more use them as a social interaction device. Um, So more problematic use is more common in females. Um, I think that it's less an addiction to a phone, but it's more an addiction to content that has addictive properties. So we know that Facebook has engineered itself to be somewhat addictive, um, and there are many um, other um, activities that have reinforcement in in terms of having to re- keep using them to keep checking them, um, and that then can lead to sort of excessive use.
0: Yeah, a lot of the apps or the games or the uh, Snapchat, you only have 24 hours before it expires, so you have to go back and check. Exactly. So. Um, the study also said that 47% of respondents were trying to cut their smartphone usage. So do you think people feel guilty about, do people know that they're on their phones a lot and are they trying to sort of cut back on their own? You know,
1: a lot of people are trying to cut back, um, but it's very difficult. So much of almost everyday functioning requires a phone Um And I think only when people are becoming aware of the impact that their phone usage is having on their activities and their ability to do things. So there's an interesting study looking at people who are high phone users versus low phone users looking at their ability to solve problems creatively. And those who relied on their phone to answer a question were much less able to solve a problem creatively.
0: Huh. So they just sort of outsource their brain to their phone and... Exactly. If the phone doesn't work or loses a charge, yeah. they're lost. Huh. Um, well, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate psychiatrist Christopher Lucas about cell phone usage. Um, so tell me what if you would rather break your arm or your phone. You were telling me there's a study about that, right?
1: Yeah, they, they asked uh, uh, teenagers, would they rather have a broken arm or a broken phone? And you know, about 48% would rather have a broken arm than a fo- broken phone, um, which is sort of scary in terms of how much the phone becomes part of them. So maybe it actually is like a, another arm. Okay,
0: well, another thing that struck me in the Pew Research Center report was that people use their phones not just for calling and texting. Phones these days are used for looking for jobs, finding dates, reading books, shopping, even paying for purchases. Um, so these are sort of practical uses, and some would maybe say positive uses of a smartphone. But is this is this usage that maybe needs to be scaled back as well? You
1: know, probably not so much. I think that. Um where you need to sort of scale back use is where it starts to get in the way of regular functioning, so regular social interaction. Um, the most common associated negative effect from smartphone use is sleep. So I think that one of the first things that should be looked at is what's what's the quality of the sleep? How much sleep are you getting? Um, because poor sleep the night before leads to reduced functioning. Um, so they did some studies of workers who were... Responding to work emails late in the evening, and they were much less productive the next day.
0: Wow. Okay. Now, there's some people that forbid the use of smartphones at a dinner table, um, or there's families that prohibit the you know bringing smartphones to bed. Right. Are these effective ways of limiting? The you know, smartphone I think having research?
1: a sort of um, a digital free zone or digital free time is probably one of the easier ways to do that um, so I've known sort of millennials put all of their smartphones in the middle of the restaurant table and the first one to touch it has to pick up the tab You know that. Um, <laughs> but I think families could have similar rules that you know phones need to go in a bowl and they can be picked up after the meal's finished
0: so if the teenager starts having anxiety about not having their phone in their mm-hmm. hand it, is that something they need to just work through
1: yes yeah, you know Anxiety is a a useful emotion, but it's one that dissipates over time. So that if you persist experiencing anxiety, it settles. Um, And then the next time it won't be as anxiety-provoking. If you forever respond to the anxiety by picking up your phone, you never learn that you're able to live without your phone for a while. So you can sort of
0: train yourself. Mm -hmm. Okay. What do you advise if you've got um, a patient that comes to you and says... Help me! I feel like I'm really addicted to my phone. What are some of the things um, that you advise them to do to sort of establish a healthy?
1: So I think that they need to get um, a little bit more distance from their phone, so that the phone isn't isn't always with them. Um, I think they need to have times or places where they aren't using their phone. Um, but as with any sort of addiction, you really want to look at the motivation for change. So what is it that is wrong in their current life that they feel that reducing their cell phone usage would help address. Um, and really try and m- uh, motivate people to see the positive benefits of not using the phone for everything.
0: So it might be that, you know, their their boyfriend or girlfriend has accused them of, you know, being on their phone too much. Mm-hmm. So is that a motivating absolutely. enough factor? You know,
1: if, you know, they still like the boyfriend yeah. or girlfriend. <laughs> okay. But absolutely, yes. Um, you know, I think that getting in the way of regular interactions. Um, You know, one of the more sobering statistics is that the the psychological characteristic most common in people who are heavy phone users is loneliness. Really? Um, Yeah. And it seems that people who are lonely are are driven or drawn towards using a cell phone for interaction, Um, but then increased use doesn't make them any less lonely.
0: Interesting. So how do you strike a balance between... Uh, you know, being connected because you that that's positive to mm-hmm. feel like you're a part of something, right? For and sure. and being disconnected.
1: You know, I think it's a balance between having face to face interactions and having um, online virtual interactions. Um, you know, both of equally valid types of interactions. But if one is crowding out the other, then um, it's probably unhealthy.
0: Um, loneliness, if that's sort of an underlying issue. Mm-hmm. What do you do with that? Um,
1: Again, you get out, you meet people, you talk to people, you...
0: Maybe force yourself to... Yeah. Get out and go to a restaurant on your own or uh, go do things.
1: An interaction via your smartphone is inherently less anxiety-provoking. But again... Anxiety is something that needs to be addressed. If you're anxious about social interactions, you need to expose yourself to those so they become less anxiety-provoking, you become more skilled at them um, rather than avoiding them, and the only way I can interact is via a virtual means.
0: So that sounds like it's something a person could sort of attempt on their own, but Mm -hmm. might they need professional assistance too? You
1: know, I think that if there's significant social anxiety, yes, they probably do.
0: What about, are there people that just don't have a problem with phone usage that are, I mean, how, how did they get so lucky that they don't have this issue?
1: Um, you know, I think that um, there are definitely people who are very heavy phone users where it isn't a problem and, and they seem to be able to have a balance in their life. Or it could be that they are less susceptible to these reinforcing behaviors so that they, some people are somewhat more drawn to them and that may be neurochemical basis. so really Um, people with adhd are often drawn to new and exciting sources of stimulation Um, it underpins some of their distractibility Uh, and people with adhd are more prone to problem phone usage so it could well be that the same mechanisms are happening
0: wow and it's feeding itself Mm -hmm. by doing wow well interesting this has been a, a very interesting discussion i appreciate you being here my guest has been upstate psychiatrist christopher lucas I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next. What it's like for some Native American children growing up on reservations on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on air. People in medicine, especially those from central New York, know the name Dr. Frank Oski. He was a pediatric hematologist who was the chairman of pediatrics at Upstate Medical University until 1985 when he left to lead the pediatrics department at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He died in 1996 and the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital named its Pediatric Intensive Care Unit in his memory. His daughter is a pediatrician um, at Tuba City Regional Healthcare in Arizona, and Dr. Jane Oski is visiting upstate today to give a lecture on the health status of Native American children. She agreed to talk with HealthLink on air as well. Thank you for being here, Dr. Oski.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Amber.
0: Now tell me first, were you um, inspired to choose a career in medicine by your father?
2: So initially, I fought any desire to be in medicine because I didn't want to follow in my father's footsteps. It was a, a, a very deliberate adolescent conflict with parent, And um, I initially uh, was a uh, strict liberal arts major in my undergraduate years and pursued a degree in American Studies and left college and went to work as a journalist for about four to five years. and in about my third or fourth year of journalism, while I was being exposed more and more to issues related to public health, I woke up one morning and said, I'm not really advancing the issues that I'm writing about, and I'm really preaching to the choir. So I started investigating careers in public health, getting a master's in public health versus a PhD in public health. And at that time in the mid-80s, I got the correct advice that if I really wanted to do anything in public health, I needed to have a doctoral degree attached to it. So that was when I decided to go into medicine. My father was absolutely thrilled. And it was inevitable that with his mentorship and modeling of not just pediatric care, but Fantastic public health advocacy that I would end up as a pediatrician myself.
0: Wow, interesting! And and now you live in Flagstaff, Arizona.
2: Yes, part I, of
0: the time, and also,
2: also in Tuba City. Which so Tuba City is the westernmost town on the Navajo Nation. The Navajo Nation is approximately the size of West Virginia and uh, encompasses parts of northeastern Arizona, northwestern New Mexico southeastern Utah, and southwestern Colorado, with the largest population density is actually in New Mexico, um, although the largest landmass of the Navajo Nation is in northeastern Arizona.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about what are the health issues of Native American children.
2: So on almost all different measures, Native American children who live on reservation lands are worse off than the U.S. population as a whole. And in health categories, we have made enormous advances in preventing vaccine-preventable diseases by demonstrating that the vaccines against the pneumococcal bacteria and haemophilus influenza that used to cause seven to 10 times the rate of disease in Native American and Alaskan Native children is now, I won't say insignificant, but tremendously reduced. The rates of diseases from both of those bacteria are still elevated in Native American and Alaskan Native children in comparison to the US as a whole, but the number of children who are affected has diminished to the point where it's actually manageable. Um, So, that's one example of infectious disease and a public health approach. We are tremendously fortunate that families on Navajo area and in many other tribal communities are very, very accepting of vaccines, which is not necessarily the case in all of our communities in America these days. As you probably know, we're seeing a rising incidence of vaccine hesitancy and vaccine refusal in the communities in which I've worked, families have actually seen the benefit. They may have had a child who was either uh, a fatality from an infection or was permanently neurologically devastated based on an infection. And they've now seen their other children or grandchildren be free of these diseases. So that's a, a very potent message to communities. So our, our families in general are very accepting of vaccines. Are they able to access vaccination? So through the Indian Health Service, as well as tribal and urban programs, children who are members of tribes are categorically eligible for the uh, federally funded program that's known as Vaccines for Children. And so if if a Native American child can access health care at any of those sites they're automatically eligible for those vaccines. On Navajo area, although it's a very wide geographic area, there is strategic placement of hospitals and health centers so that most of the population doesn't need to travel more than 25 to 50 miles to get access to care. And the majority of the population density is in areas where they have immediate access to medical care.
0: Are the... Um health issues in children um, much different for a Native American living on reservation lands than other than children who are not? Are we Uh, talking about the same kind of health issues?
2: So overall, the same health issues are encountered. Um, One thing that is very, very different and is truly a scourge uh, on the American government's treatment of our Native American people is that in the Desert Southwest tribal communities and in the um, Alaskan tribal communities, there are still in 2010, 30% of homes that have neither running water nor electricity. And those risk factors in association with household crowding, and household crowding is defined as more than one person per room in a home. So if you lived in a four-room home, a kitchen, um, an eating area, a bedroom, and a living room, if you had more than four people in that small space, regardless of how many square feet, that would qualify as household crowding. Um, The combination of lack of running water, lack of electricity, and a higher rate of household crowding puts children at greater risk of many infectious diseases, and especially respiratory diseases.
0: Wow. Wow, that's hard to absorb that that's how life is for people, some people in America today. Yes, Wow. Um, when you go in and you Google the topic, um, Native American health issues, there's a bunch of things that come up. Um, diabetes, injuries, tuberculosis, suicide, sexual abuse, um, pneumonia, influenza, and there's a lot there.
2: Um, Is that what you're uh, focused on in your research and work? So all of those categories of illness are foci of our public health work. Um, One perhaps unifying cause for all of those conditions is what is known as historical trauma. So historical trauma is the concept of a community or a population having endured something such as genocide, or something such as uh, an outside force working hard to diminish the size of a population. Um, It could also be war, it could be poverty that leads to historical trauma in a population. For Native Americans, there's the combination of the American Indian Wars of the 19th century, Uh, reduction, starvation, forced migration away from their homes, their cultural locations, as well as what came after that, which was the boarding school phenomenon where very many Native American children, more um, commonly in the western states and the northern plains, were were taken from their homes, placed into boarding schools because there weren't good public schools available in their more remote settings. And in the boarding schools, children were actually beaten for speaking their native languages. Mm. And also in the boarding schools, there were um, documented high incidents of child abuse and sexual abuse. So if you can imagine all of those various traumas, both physical and emotional, occurring to families, there is intergenerational transmission of those traumas and historical trauma like poverty is now known to be one of the many adverse childhood experiences that a child can be exposed to early in their life. Those adverse childhood experiences, whether it's poverty, physical abuse, physical physical neglect, parental discord, separation, divorce, being exposed to domestic violence in the home, being exposed to parental substance or alcohol use or abuse, all of these things are considered to be causes of adverse childhood experiences. And we know from the seminal work of Dr. Felitti and Dr. Anda that occurred as part of a Kaiser study in San Diego in the early 1990s. This was done in a predominantly Caucasian population, a predominantly middle-class population, and they found that even in that relatively privileged community that having three adverse childhood experiences increased the risk dramatically of chronic illnesses of adulthood. Cardiovascular disease, diabetes, lung disease, and also increased the risk of those people turning to alcohol or drugs to numb the pain, becoming suicidal, developing depression. So the whole concept of adverse childhood experiences is actually derived from work in Caucasian communities, but the model is being also applied to native american communities across the country
0: so a lasting lifelong impact correct based on based on that and we um, now
2: even have some evidence that there can be gene changes what are known as epigenetic changes that can be transmitted from one generation to the next and we don't yet know whether some of those epigenetic changes could be responsible for the higher rates of type 2 diabetes that are seen in Native American children and adults. Interesting. We we have strong suspicion and the beginning of evidence that these epigenetic changes are responsible for an increased risk of certain what are known as autoimmune diseases in Native American peoples such as um uh, rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile arthritis, conditions such as that.
0: This is Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Jane Oski, a pediatrician and visiting lecturer to the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. Um, tell me if there's been progress that's been made in health disparities in, in, in the health disparities due to use of sound public health principles. Do you have some examples?
2: So as I mentioned earlier, uh, thank you for that question. Um, one of the most significant interventions that we've been able to provide has been vaccine. Vaccine. And the vaccines against the haemophilus influenza, what's also known as H flu in shorthand, and streptococcal pneumonia have been enormously effective at reducing respiratory diseases and um, otitis media or ear infections in um, children in Native American communities across the country. The other thing that we've done a substantial job at reducing is the incidence of hepatitis A disease, which used to be epidemic in the desert southwest and in the Alaskan tribes. And so the hepatitis A vaccine beginning in 1996 was given to our communities um, much more aggressively, and we have seen the rates of hepatitis A drop down below the rate that's seen in the U.S. in general. Wow. Um, there are several different promising programs that are not necessarily traditional health-related programs, but um, more like service programs that are offered, one of which is called the Family Spirit Program, which was developed at the Johns Hopkins Center for American Indian Health, which is housed at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. It is a three-year, 33-curriculum educational program that is offered in the homes to families of firstborn, whether or not they're teen parents or young adult parents. And ideally, the families are connected with, prior to the birth actually happening, the 33- different curricular elements, address positive parenting techniques, uh, childhood injury reduction, car seat safety use, the importance of early childhood um, education, teaching, reading to our children as early as at birth, uh, developmental promotion in the homes, positive relationship status, and This program, the Family Spirit Program, is now being used in over 100 tribal communities nationwide and has actually been adapted for use in urban communities in both St. Louis and Chicago. And it shows the greatest potential for actually preventing the adverse childhood experiences because it's helping parents to learn the best skills for Loving their children, raising their children, in enveloping their children with love and developmental support.
0: So being very proactive about this correct. Wow. This has been very interesting. My guest has been pediatrician and visiting lecturer, Dr. Jane Osky. I'm Amber Smith for the podcast and talk show produced by Upstate, Health Link on Air. Next up, fullness in the ear, progressive hearing loss, and a sensation that the world is spinning are symptoms that may point to Meniere's disease. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on air. Meniere's disease is not necessarily life-threatening, but it can be extremely debilitating for people who suffer its symptoms. Here to talk about this disease, its diagnosis, and treatments is Dr. Charles Woods, an assistant professor of Otolaryngology and Communication Sciences at Upstate. Welcome. Thanks for being here.
3: Thank you.
2: Now,
0: I also want to say you spe- this is ear, nose, and throat, um, but within that, you subspecialize. What is your um, subspecialization?
3: Well, after my residency in uh, ear, nose, and throat, I went on for a year and a half uh, at Vanderbilt University to further uh, refine what I was going to specialize in. And the, so they call me an otologist, neurootologist, uh, which is really somebody who focuses on ear disease okay. from the brain on out.
0: Now, and Meniere's falls within that.
3: Yes, it does. Okay.
0: So tell us what Meniere's disease is.
3: Well, I guess first off, I I always tell patients that I I don't even like the name disease because it's it's an ear that's not functioning correctly, an inner ear. And the inner ear is made up of both the hearing side of things, but also balance side of things. So semicircular canals are involved in the balance and the cochlea is involved in the hearing. And it's it's an ear that's not functioning correctly, but it's not necessarily a disease.
0: Okay. All right. Are there um, symptoms to be on the lookout for? How would someone know that they've got this?
3: Well, there's four major symptoms that, uh, that Meniere's disease causes. And it it, again, goes back to the fact that the inner ear is involved with both hearing and balance. So the hearing side of things, you're going to have a progressive uh, sort of stepwise uh, sensory neural hearing loss where the little hair cells inside the cochlea are being damaged. Uh, there's some feeling to the ear. So you oftentimes experience a feeling of, of the ear feeling full or plugged. And that can cause problems, especially for family practitioners, because when they, when they get that symptom, they think the ear has fluid in it. Uh, and oftentimes, that's not the case. So a feeling of fullness, you're progressively losing your hearing. It causes tinnitus or tinnitus. Uh, and that can be a whole variety of different sounds, uh, everything from a high-pitched sound to uh, a seashell sound or a hiss. And then episodes of vertigo. And the vertigo is, is oftentimes the most debilitating symptom. So if we can, if we can at least alleviate that symptom for people, uh, the, the disordered ear is much more bearable. The, is vertigo uh, dizziness? Vertigo is, uh, for a physician, dizziness is usually considered a little bit lighter symptom. Vertigo is much more debilitating because it's that sense that the world is spinning or that you feel like you're spinning. Uh, and true violent vertigo from Meniere's disease is you can't function with it. You can't really walk down the hallway when you're spinning like that. Whereas dizziness or lightheadedness, we, most people can still function with. It's, uh, it's a lighter symptom.
0: I've heard too that um, it's unpredictable, so you can't plan for it. you don't really know it's going to happen.
3: And that's oftentimes one of the one of the most debilitating things for patients is they they almost become reclusive because they're so afraid that they're going to go out someplace, whether it's a restaurant or just out in public, and that they're all of a sudden going to get this attack uh, of vertigo. And usually the attack can last anywhere. From fifteen minutes to several hours, and you just
0: have to stop, and cope with it, and get help for
3: what patients really like to do. If they're home, they usually, you know, crawl off to their room, uh, get in bed, and usually just sleep it off.
0: But if you're not at home, obviously, if you're not at got, home, that's yeah.
3: that's a problem.
0: Now you mentioned um, a feeling of fullness or plugged in the ear. Is there is there something obstructing? Or is it just a feeling, a sensation? Well, one
3: common etiology, and this comes from actually examining people's inner ears after they've died, is what we call interlymphatic hydrops. And so there's two major fluid spaces inside the inner ear, again, the balance side of things and the hearing side of things. And those fluid spaces are actually connected to the fluid space, the spinal fluid space around the brain. And these are very specialized fluids that are involved with creating the electrical potentials that then go off to the brain and allow us to hear and have balance. So what the high drops is, is where there's an increased pressure within the endolymphatic space. And again, no one knows what causes that. And oftentimes, when I'm explaining this to patients, I tell them it's, it's not all that dissimilar from glaucoma. Glaucoma uh, is an increased fluid pressure inside the eye. When that fluid pressure is increased, it can cause retinal damage. Same thing with the inner ear. There's an increased pressure within this fluid space in the inner ear, and that can cause progressive neural damage.
0: Does it happen with age?
3: It doesn't really happen. I mean, you can have Meniere's disease when you're as young as, you know, in your teens. It's much more common usually in your 30s, 40s, 50s.
0: Huh, okay. So is it difficult to diagnose? Or if you have these symptoms, are you considered that you have Meniere's?
3: Well, it certainly can be initially. Uh, So someone starting off with Meniere's disease they may not even really feel like they have any hearing loss because it's oftentimes involving just the lower frequencies of sound and the the, the ear may sound a little bit distorted. They may have occasional tinnitus. It may last for an hour and then go away. Uh, the ear may feel a little bit plugged. And so they'll go to their family practitioner. And again, oftentimes it's misdiagnosed as you have some fluid in your middle ear causing these symptoms, which is very common after a cold. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, oftentimes, early on, when it's especially when the hearing is fluctuating, they may have a day or two where it's bad and then it's better again.
2: Uh,
0: are there things that are like this that have to be ruled out? If you've got, like, if you've got vertigo. Um, and maybe you think it's Meniere's, are, are there things that have to be ruled out before you can... Well,
3: vertigo is either inner ear or brain. And fortunately, most of the problems that cause vertigo are inner ear problems. Okay. And these these attacks, when they occur, there are other things that can cause vertigo. And so what you're trying to do is listen to the patient and try to determine... Are their attacks more likely to be from Meniere's disease, or are they um, some of the other inner ear disorders that can cause vertigo? Uh, The most common is benign positional vertigo. And so, again, early on in the disease, it can be difficult to kind of nail this down. And I'll oftentimes tell my patients, you know, time is going to separate this out. So when they actually start actually having showing signs of sensory neural hearing loss now they're ha- more consistently having tinnitus and the full-blown four symptoms. Now you can be very sure that they have Meniere's disease.
0: So it may take some time to it
3: may yeah. take some time.
0: All right this is Upstate's Health link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith talking with upstate otolaryngologist or ear nose and throat doctor Dr. Charles Woods about Meniere's disease. Um, so I'm assuming that primary care doctors, would refer patients to an ENT specialist such as yourself if they
3: have someone with these symptoms? Especially when the symptoms start to be progressive and and more full-blown.
0: Okay, so can you walk us through what's typically done when you see a new patient?
3: Well, first is is clarifying the diagnosis. Second would then be trying to control the disease medically and at least 70 to 80 percent of patients are uh, are controlled medically and that's as far as where I need to go with them other than making the diagnosis.
0: Does that mean medication when you say controlled medically?
3: The two mainstay treatments uh, across the world right now are low sodium diets because sodium controls fluid in our body and to some extent can, can help control Meniere's disease and the other is usually a diuretic and the diuretic also is an imperfect fix, but does control the the pressure within some of these fluid spaces within the inner ear. And so the combination of those two uh, will control most people.
0: Huh. Okay. Okay. And that's is that a lifetime following low sodium and diuretics, or
3: because do- the disease is intermittent. Um, you, you, you're not sure exactly how long and, and what period of time you need to treat people. Uh, but oftentimes, it's at least intermittent treatment lifelong because the disease will last lifelong.
0: So it may flare up? It's not going to go
3: away. It's not. Uh, okay. it's, it's going to plague the patient intermittently through their life. And so they may have quiet periods uh, of several years where they don't need to be treated, but then they turn back up and need a little bit of help for a couple of years.
0: Okay. Now, you said that um, low-sodium diet and diuretic help the majority of people with these symptoms. What about those that are not helped by that?
3: So that's where I primarily become involved as a surgeon helping these people. Uh, there, There are actually quite a few... Uh, varied, more invasive treatments, and I'll start in the, uh, with, the, with the least invasive first. And those are where we actually inject various medications through the tympanic membrane. and the let, ear,
0: Is that the eardrum?
3: That's the eardrum.
0: Okay.
3: So inject these medications actually through the eardrum, and now those medications are in the middle ear space. And we usually try to keep them within the middle ear, Uh, you know, for about a half hour for most of these medications. And there's two main ones. One would be steroids, uh, dexamethasone, and the other would be an antibiotic. And this is confusing to patients because that antibiotic is actually toxic to the ear. And those are the aminoglycoside family. And the, the most common use is gentamicin. So gentamicin is used for many infections in the body, but it can actually be used for its toxic effects in the ear, huh. reducing the function of the inner ear.
0: Okay. If that doesn't help?
3: If that doesn't help, there's uh, several different operations that are available um, with varied success. Uh, the one that has the least success is the one that actually tried to get at the problem uh, directly, and that's what we call the endolymphatic sac decompression or shunt procedure. So the endolymphatic system um, is uh, a system that's going, again, between the fluid spaces of the brain and the inner ear. And there's a part of the inner ear called the endolymphatic duct and sac that is allowing fluid to go between those two fluid spaces. And so the shunt was designed to try to reduce the fluid pressure within the endolymphatic space. And it has anywhere, depending on what series you read, success rate of between uh, 50 and 70%, which is not great by surgical standards. So, but it's also a a fairly non-invasive procedure. You're not going to hurt someone's hearing usually by doing this kind of procedure. It's a procedure that you can do in, a, in about an hour and a half to two hours. Um, again, it's how effective is it going to be?
0: What's the more successful? The more
3: successful procedures are where you're actually a little bit more destructive to the ear. Um, the, uh, we have the capability of actually going in between the brain and the inner ear and just cutting the vestibular nerve, the balance nerve, leaving the cochlear nerve for hearing alone. And that operation is actually uh, quite successful, uh, probably between 95 and 98%. But it's also quite invasive uh, and, and carries the risk of us being next to the brain as we're doing this surgery.
0: Well, and what happens when you cut the balance nerve?
3: Well, the brain is quite good at switching over to the normal side for balance function. So those individuals actually will get back probably 98 to 99% of their balance function. And as long as that nerve is not sending bad signals from the ear that's dysfunctioning, then they do quite well. The only individuals that I worry about with that type of thing are as we get older, and I'm, I'm, I'm lumping myself into this, so above the age of about 65, now we're not going to compensate as well because uh, the plasticity of our brain isn't as good at switching over to the normal side. There's, there's, there's one last thing. one. Okay. okay. And that's the labyrinthectomy. And a labyrinthectomy is where you actually surgically go in and remove the inner ear. Huh. That's a fairly... I don't want to say simple operation, but a straightforward operation. It's no longer involving the brain. And you're removing both, you're removing the balance canals, is essentially what you're doing. But it it does the same thing as cutting the vestibular nerve it makes the brain switch over to the good side, and it gets rid of the bad signals coming from the dysfunctioning ear.
0: Interesting. Well, thank you so much. My guest has been Upstate Otolaryngologist Dr. Charles Woods. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
4: I love when our writers talk to us about the act of writing and what it means to them, how it happens for them. Here are two fine examples. The first comes from Brielle Stanton, now a pediatric resident at Yale New Haven Hospital. It's called writing. I hesitate while stepping out into the trees afraid to stub my toe or step on a weakened branch. Past slivers have slid so deeply into the tight wraps of my feet, yet the skin on my heels has grown tough with years, thickened like plaster for protection. I have been shown how to walk by parents, aunts, teachers, but climbing isn't as easy. Now that I have learned the danger of a fall, my mind, submerged in risk, scrapes corners for courage. Slowly, slowly, I reach for a limb, wrinkled in strength, and once my pen touches the page, I am finally climbing barefoot. The second poem comes from Ithaca poet, belly dancer, and college student, Haley Shea. Listen to the music she creates in her poem, Whiplash. Words crash across a page and down a column, Letters splash, meaning into morphemes, mixing, mesmerize. Semantic sandpaper, rough against the brain, friction rising, sparks flying. Wait for the fire to catch, burning minds with bright ideas, charred, scarred to action. Breath taken, energy shaken. No safety from reality is what it is. Face it head on. No wait, too cliché. Insulation thrown to the sidelines, neural tissues, balance issues, axons connected in myelin sheathing. Remember to check, are you still breathing? Rhythm, rock to rest, stillness, verse illness, calm the waters till they settle, don't let the monsters meddle, and remember always intention.
0: Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, sleep advice for seniors. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.